You're listening to the Living with Licensing podcast, brought to you by Asgard Media. L-I-C-E-N-S-I-N-G, news and info, stuff is happening, here's the place you've got to go, for the cool kids in the know. Now here's your host, Kelvin Gardner. Good afternoon, David. Hi, Kelvin, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, David, I hope you are too. Yeah, it's not too bad, sun shining outside, looks pretty good. <laughs> We're going to be talking about you and your career at Rainbow Productions throughout, but perhaps I could ask you to start with all, to tell us what Rainbow Productions still does and did under your stewardship for so many years. Okay, well, we are specialists in costume characters, and for the uninitiated, the simple way to explain that is if you go to a theme park, say Disneyland, and meet a Mickey Mouse character walking around, that is a costume character. It's a professional professionally made costume, uh, it is not fancy dress, it is not dress up. Uh, uh, many people say to me, you must have great fancy dress parties, you wouldn't wear these for fun at a fancy dress party. They're very uh, highly skilled makers that we use and we do three things with them essentially. One is we manufacture, we manufacture on site and we export to I think getting on for 80 countries around the world. Uh, we do events, we use uh, professional actors to go in the costumes and we do well over a thousand events per year in normal times, obviously less so during COVID times. Of course. And we also warehouse and store costumes. Uh, and so we, we have a wardrobe unit, uh, which is uniquely built for that purpose. Absolutely necessary, I would think, because as you say, David, these are not the sort of things to turn up into a fancy dress party in by any means. No, you, you, so you wouldn't wear this for fun. And I remember the first time I, I, I got to Rainbow, it was a small little building in Kingston, and, and I opened the door and there were heads of various characters sitting there looking at me. It was kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when you went <laughs> in and quite spooky at times, but uh, you get used to it. Well, I'm sure you did, David, but tell us a little bit about the David Scott before Rainbow Productions. What part of the country do you come from and how did you make your way down to the vast London metropolis to get first involved with, uh, with Rainbow? Right, well, I'll try and keep it uh, short, but uh, I kind of didn't join Rainbow till till late 30s, so I had a career before that, or indeed a number of careers. I was actually born in a village called Mickleton in Teesdale, uh, which is about eight miles from uh, a very famous market town called Barnard Castle, which yeah. is obviously <laughs> where Dominic Cummings went to test his eyesight. It's probably rather it more famous now to... than it was when you were born. <laughs> Well, it should be more famous, it, and it's, I, I quite laugh when, when people refer to on the news as Barnard Castle. It's <laughs> Barney, if you, if you live up north, it's Barney. But it also has, an, apart from a castle and the river, it's got a wonderful uh, art museum called uh, the Bose Museum, which I thoroughly recommend. So it is a really good place to go to, uh, even if you don't just want to follow in the tracks of Mr. Cummings. I test or uh, not then, I guess, David. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting, I was actually born at home uh, because I came a bit of a rush. My siblings were taking maternity hospital. So the house in Mickleton, the, where I was born and came into this world, is still standing. So it's quite uh, odd to, to go and have a look at that house and think, well, actually, that's where I came to this earth. Okay. But, uh, there you go. Anyway, I moved to Darlington, uh, which was uh, the nearest big town when I was about seven because my father had work there. Uh, then went to the grammar school, boys grammar school, which became a sixth form college and girls were allowed in. And I, like many others, failed to meet my predicted grades because uh, things were rather more interesting than <laughs> studying. 
so um, I didn't quite get to university first time around and I, I got a job as a management trainee in a local paint company, which was frankly as interesting as it sounds. And, uh, and uh, But I, I was kind of looking around, I thought I missed my chance, but really I should be doing some more with myself. And I found out about a course that was a dual Franco-British course. So it had French and British students. It was European Business Administration. And you would spend two years in either country. And in the UK, you'd be taught in English. And in France, you'd be taught in French. And so I got stuck in on that. And uh, I worked for Renault for a time in Paris as a stagiaire. And uh, I got, a, I got a, a, a first in that. And also the French business degree as well. So I got two degrees the price of one. Which well, that, that, that's a fact I didn't know. As long, long as we've known each other, David, I didn't realise your French uh, background there. Yeah, well, I was quite fluent in those days. My part ones and finals were all in French. But uh, unfortunately, I'm less good now because I just haven't been able to keep it up. But it's something I would like to perhaps take up again a little bit more when I've got more time now. Why so I, after, after graduating, I, I got a job in a graphic arts supplies company in southeast London. Really wasn't that happy doing it. And uh, after a few months, I, I resigned and did what we did in those days, which was to interrail around Europe. But just moving forward very quickly, I, after that, I then went and lived in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, selling crash fire trucks, which are the fire trucks that are supposed to save you if you have plane crashes. Uh, and in actual fact, I was in Jeddah and I had my first uh, engine fire on a plane when I was traveling back from Jeddah to Riyadh. And those same fire trucks followed us down the runway to make sure we're okay. <laughs> so it was a good job we, we did that. and. Uh, um, I then uh, came back, basically, I, I went to uh, live in Saudi Arabia, I got some money for, to get a deposit on a house, came back, and I joined Athena in those days, so it was still around, and I was export for those handling Europe, and didn't really enjoy that too much, because I didn't kind of get on with the, the, the guy who was my boss. And, and I, so, I think it's worth saying for any of our visitors a little bit younger than I, David, just what a huge retail business Athena was at the time you were with them, I guess. Yeah, it was absolutely massive with posters and prints and it was really the go-to supply. It had, it had retail outlets and, and it did export around the world. And in fact, um, we could, we could it, do with a retailer like that in the 21st century, couldn't we really? We probably could, yes. Uh, and I think, uh, well, reta the retail sector is struggling so much at the moment. I think anything that uh, can revitalize it would be, would be very good indeed. Uh, that was actually where I met somebody who we all know from, from licensing, and that was Trevor Jones, who's oh, right. currently the chairman of the Light Fund, because yeah. he worked for a pop and poster printed company, and I met him at a couple of overseas trade fairs. And uh, when I left Athena, he recommended I speak to his company, and I ended up working for them in export as an export agent as a freelance. And I was able to repay the 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 compliment a little bit later because Athena said to me, we're, we're thinking of buying this pop poster company. Um, what do you think? And I said, we don't need to just hire Trevor because he knows everything. So <laughs> they approached Trevor and that was when he joined Athena. Okay. Uh, and obviously went on from Athena onto Danilo after that. Hmm. Fascinating uh, connection. Um, and so I applied for lots of jobs and in the end, a, a company who some people remember in the industry called Sutton Gibbs took me on their list. And they invited me to go and meet uh, David Cardwell at Copyright Promotions. And Copyright uh, Promotions and were one of the very first uh, UK-created licensing agencies, of course. Indeed, indeed they were. And unfortunately, we lost David 
uh, last year, as, as we know. And uh, in fact, I used to meet him a uh, long time after we, we split away. Uh, Copyright Promotions, I should say, owned Rainbow, and they were looking for someone to turn that company around. And uh, so uh, I used to talk to him afterwards about how we'd done it, but uh, probably come to a bit of that in a moment. Yeah. Anyway, I met him on the Monday. Uh, I was invited back on the Friday and offered the job. And so started about a week later. And I'd never been to the premises. I've no real idea what costume characters were. Uh, the position had become vacant because the staff had actually rebelled and refused to work with the previous manager. And in the year of my arrival at Rainbow, it, it, the loss that it posted was 60% of its turnover. Mm, wow, so my word. what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Well, it's either a great opportunity or a nightmare to turn around, one or the other. Yeah. Well, it, it, well, it was a, it was a challenge, uh, to be fair. And when I got there, and I mentioned earlier that we we have three strands to our business. In those days, there was only two strands, and eighty percent of the turnover was character events. So that's doing ev appearances by costume characters and retailers or in theme parks or that kind of thing. And only twenty percent was manufacture. Hmm. And it became obvious to me that we were not going to be able to create any more shopping centres. That number existed. We were selling to them or we weren't. We couldn't make any more retailers. So our event side weren't going to be able to increase that as much as our manufacturer, where effectively anybody who has a brand uh, could be targeted for making a costume. I remember we, we targeted um, when Access came out was the first time uh, credit cards were coming out and using Access instead of money. We made costume characters of an access card and money and did um, promotional tours around the country trying to promote that brand. So by increasing the manufacture, um, that helped us get to position by 95 when we were pretty much breaking even. I joined in 92, so it was about two and a half mm. years to get to about breaking even. And quite an interesting uh, target to choose, a financial services company, not the obvious toy or kids brand type business. Yeah, and in actual fact, a very good target market because when you think about it, money is money and you can't touch it, feel it, you know, it's got no yep. intrinsic value of design, if you like. Yeah. And so, you, but you can actually, so insurance services, we actually did stuff for them. If you're doing a, a an exhibition or you're trying to promote it, to give something visually, which actually represents the product you've got, which you can't represent visually yourself, is actually a very good idea. And, 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 and well. still copied to this day with the likes of Churchill, the, the nodding dog and so on, I guess. Absolutely right. Yeah, you've got to try and give it it's some kind of personality. Uh, and the meerkat, in fact, we've made meerkats as well, costume characters. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one way. Um, but so, I mean, you know David Cardwell pretty well, I think. And uh, he was a hard taskmaster in those early days, that's for sure. Well, so copyright promotions itself has got a fascinating history, and during your time there, it, it went through a couple of changes of ownership, and then at, at one point you, you were offered the opportunity to acquire Rainbow to run for yourself. Is that right? Yeah, well, actually, in fact, David and Richard Cully, who's his business partner, I think they actually sold uh, copyright promotions three times <laughs> and, and made money every time, so well done them. Um, I, we got to 95, and I was... Uh, Rainbow was pretty much breaking even and uh, I was called up to Tottenham Court Road to the head office where at one period in the summer and they kind of patted me on the head and said well done David that's great you know we're not, you're not costing the group any money now right. um, but we don't want you anymore. Damning by faint praise. Eh? <laughs> yes that's right um, so they said do you want to buy Rainbow uh, and if you don't we've got somebody else who will so kind of focus the mind mm. and uh, and to be fair to CPL um, 
I bought it for a nominal sum, an absolute nominal sum. The problem was really with, with the bank. Um, the, we, our bank account was within the group account and all we were going to do was take it out and use the same bank account number, uh, but just take it out of the group account. But I had to go and see the bank manager about that. And we were going to get an overdraft and I expect you might have to put the house on the line for that. But this guy really ripped into me and, and said, well, you know, you may be breaking even, but technically you're insolvent. And not only do we want the house to back up the overdraft, um, we also wanted to put X thousand pounds in. My word. I hadn't been expecting that. And, that sounds um, fairly heavy duty terms for a company that had been trading, at, at least keeping its head above water for so long. Yeah, indeed. And I was, I was quite shocked. I thought it was a bit of a, a rubber stumping uh, yeah. kind of trip to see the bank manager. Um, so I got back home and um, uh, my wife was in the kitchen cooking dinner. And I remember we, we actually never made it to the dining room that evening. We just stayed in the kitchen, they were standing up and probably polished off at least two bottles of wine talking about it. Mm. And as it happened, the only money we had spare was some money my, my wife had inherited from her parents who both died in quite close proximity to in time to each other. And it was that's what she had. And, um, and at the end of the evening, she said, look, we'll use that money, let's go for mm. it, uh, okay. which is very good of her. Uh, and so we, we went ahead with it. And uh, um, we're actually as a company, it's a cash positive business because we normally ask for deposits first. And we had a bit of luck early on because we got an order for uh, from a bowling alley chain that no longer, uh, it's called Allied Leisure. And uh, we made 10 bowler bears and we okay. got the deposit in, which was a big order for us, 10 bowler bears. Yep. But then by mistake, two weeks later, they paid us the balance before we'd made it. So <laughs> it turns out that Rainbow, since it was, came free from CPL, was only in, in the red for one day for, for less words. than £2,000. Well, there you go. Then that, that challenge yeah. from the bank manager, you lived up with it to it one way yeah. or another. Yeah, he soon became an ex-bank manager for us. <laughs> well, it's always nice when, when success allows you that sort of freedom, isn't it, where people didn't support yeah. you, which is always a shame. Yeah. So... At Rainbow, you've dealt with you know the vast majority of the famous characters uh, that most of us who've lived in licensing for the last decades will know of. But do you want to give me a flavour of some of the ones you worked on that you particularly enjoyed or particularly unusual, things like that? Well, I think uh, well the first licensing decision I had to make uh, was about Thunderbirds. When I joined Rainbow in '92. Uh, Thunderbirds were, were doing very, very well. It was a, it's a copyright promotions had the overall rights to it and Rainbow has had the characters. But they only had Scott and Virgil characters and it was quite clear that there's a demand there for more. So my first decision was, do we make another Scott or Virgil or we, do we make another one? And I decided we'd make Brains and then we added Lady Penelope and Parker after that. Mm. Um, so that was a good start. Um, and then again, the year after that was Captain Scarlet, uh, followed by quite bizarrely in a way, the Flintstones. It was the first uh, li uh, live action Flintstones movie for I recall. recall it, yes. Yeah, and, and it seems that in many categories, and this was a learning for me in licensing, I heard that a number of categories like stationery didn't really work and they didn't make their uh, minimum guarantees. But for us, it went crazy. And even though we had the, the animated version, if you like, of, of Fred Flintstone to go out and, and do the visits, we did very, very well that year out of it. So this so was with shopping centres paying for appearances by Fred Flintstone. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and it really worked because essentially, if we're selling to a client, although we're delivering the feature 
of the thing is that children will see the characters having them it kind of like mean father christmas meeting their heroes and it makes them very happy and it, it's great brand values for the for the brand itself but the benefit we're selling to the client the shopping center is an increase in footfall and that increase in footfall then generates sales in their shops and in their food courts etc so the feature is a great experience for a family the benefit is actually extra cash for the um the, the client who has seen an increase in footfall uh, of course and what i'm fascinated though by dave you, you've made you've made light there of the fact that you had the opportunity to do the flintstones and so you decided to do a fred flintstone but how how do you translate you know an image a, a photograph a cartoon into a a three-dimensional working professional character costume that can stand in front of the public and be convincing and entertaining um, well we, we we have the best costume character makers in Europe is, is a simple answer but there's a paradox in, in, in licensing for us in that um, although we actually generate a very small amount of royalties um, for a brand owner, probably the, the least of anything, uh, we are in fact probably the most monitored in terms of approvals, right? Uh, yeah. Because it has to be right. If you have a, a Fred Flintstone on a T-shirt, even a child knows it's a picture of Fred Flintstone on the T-shirt. Yeah. But if if they're meeting the character, that has to be perfect. So far more time is exercised on a very low royalty of the costume character than perhaps on on anything else that they actually do because it is to all intents and purposes the character yes the real yeah. experience yeah yeah and so i mean i have actually stood there where we've actually been looking at a costume character and someone will say well look that, that third eyelash on the left there could we just move it a little bit across <laughs> and you do wonder sometimes that uh, you know that's going to make such a fundamental difference but that's the level we have to get to and, and, and happy to do that because we've built our reputation on quality uh, and it's that kind of level of detail that, that makes it work for us. And not only detail, but it has to be practical. You've got to be able to get an actor in there and for it to be mobile and movable enough to make the appearance worthwhile and entertaining. So those must be all challenges in the construction procedure. Yeah, that is a case. And it brings to mind um, when we did the uh, mascots for the London Olympics, and I, I called across at short notice to to talk to them about it and i and they revealed wenlock and mandeville to me bearing in mind this is a, a sporting tournament mascot wenlock didn't have any legs i mean essentially the crutch was about two inches from the floor mm -hmm. which meant he can't move and yeah. I, I, you get very big on crutch height in this in our business <laughs> because if you don't have a high enough crutch people can't move in it and, and we had a big debate about the crutch height and the designers were saying well look you can't change that and i was saying well you have to change that so we kind of got to a little compromise where we could raise the crutch a bit and then of course locog said well it can't move and i said well i've been explaining that yeah uh, and uh, so eventually we just we edged up the crutch until you know nobody noticed of course and it became much more mobile um, yeah, so but we crutch height a standard term in uh, style guides these days as a result. Well, uh, well, <laughs> well, I mean, certainly when uh, just after the London Olympics, we also got involved with um, the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014, and they did something which I thought was very clever. And when I sit down and write the manual for tournament mascots, 
Uh, and by the way, Rainbow has done more mascots for more international tournaments than any other company on the planet. So oh, we do know what we're talking about. And, and what they did was they saw how Wenlock and Mandeville had been received, which frankly wasn't that great uh, to begin with. Mm. Um, they wanted to do something different. And they had Blue Peter, the TV program, do a competition. And then when they had the final sort of 30 to choose from, they also added into the BBC and to the organising committee uh, who were going to choose, they added an expert in toys to make sure any design would work well as a toy and an expert in costume character mascots. Sounds remarkably foresightful of this. Yeah, and, it, and it, when I write my manual for international mascots, that's one of the things I would put in as a top tip, uh, because what it meant was, uh, even though I did rattle it on again about crutch heights to various lords and ladies in Glasgow, and they looked at me a little bit disparagingly, the mascot Clyde was much better received, was loved, and in fact now Clyde has turned into the mascot for Team Scotland. My word, yes. There's yeah. world testimonies of that achievement. I wanted to ask you something about cow and chicken in your past was an interesting incident, wasn't it? Yeah, that was when I nearly won the Darwin Award, which uh, is awarded to those people who die in the most foolish way possibly. Um, uh, for, again, for, for the benefit of some of our younger listeners, just tell us what cow and chicken was. Yeah, it was a Cartoon Network uh, programme, and bizarrely, the cow and chicken were siblings uh, at totally anarchic as many Cartoon Network programs were. And we inherited this cow and chicken costume from America, it made in America, and essentially had a false arm which was riveted on. And it was an upright cow, so essentially ended it through the rear end and its others were at the front and it carried this chicken as it walked around. And so we were using actually Wimbledon tennis. And um, I remember the Williams sisters had been just started playing and they were into Cartoon Network and they'd had some photographs taken with it. And this was on the middle Saturday. And, and the word that came back was they loved it and the people loved it. Could we send it back on the Monday with the team? But I got a message that Saturday evening saying, um, we've got a problem with the, the, the fake arm. It's broken on the inside. Can you fix it? Mm. So Sunday morning, I went into the studios to have a look at it and uh, took my pliers and whatever and laid it down and climbed up the backside of this cow to get inside to try and sort out the arm and I then realized I couldn't get out because um, it was all like going in with your shoulders but coming out was much harder and I was starting to panic and I'm thinking nobody's going to come in here for the next 24 hours and when they do they're going to see my lifeless little legs hanging out of this cow's <laughs> rear end and, and I just like to calm myself down and think well you know slow breath slow breath you got in you can get out and after a heck of a struggle, I did actually manage to come out and indeed fix the arm, so I was doubly proud. In fact, not necessarily in the terms of the character costume, but was there any business meeting in the course of your career that you'd say was particularly unusual or memorable? Um, I, I, not such a business meeting. There was one weekend which was the most surreal of my life, uh, and that was when we had the children's party at the palace in 2006. And in fact, it was a garden party for children. Right. And it, it had actually been uh, suggested by Peter Orton, who you may recall yes, I do, created yeah. Hit Entertainment yeah. with Bob the Builder. And um, he suggested at the time, that was post Diana's death, and I think you know the royal family were looking to improve their profile, I think. And this was a great idea. And so we were approached by the organisers, 
and in the end we had something like 70 plus security screen people oh. on duty on the Saturday and Sunday and we'd had the week before had big was the New York licensing show that sort of puts it in context and mm. I flew back on the red eye on the Friday evening like most of us did got home showered and shaved and then went straight up to the palace as you do of course and came in and we were we were filming basically if you look on youtube you'll see it if you actually google uh, sort of youtube uh children's party at the palace you will right. find it there we'll and the whole mix a whole mashup of stuff and it was going out live apart from being the party that on the sunday it was going out live as a show on bbc and bbc oh, right. were running it and so they were filming some uh bits to go with it so that they could plug those on its various points and so at one point I was inside the palace holding on to spot the dog who was hanging out the window. <laughs> uh, and it was a whole match of that. I think of Harry Potter there. So they had some owls there. In fact, they weren't just owls. They weren't ordinary owls. They were stunt owls. Oh, my word. Stunt owls. So they, but they got bored and flew off. And so they spent hours trying to coax them back down from the trees. Uh, we were rehearsing and on stage we actually had Postman Pat. Uh, and he was being accosted by two gremlins from from the Noddy series. So it was all a bit of, of fun. And, and they grabbed him and in this rehearsal, and even though Post and Pat's trousers were held up by braces and poppers, the trousers fell down. And <laughs> Nicholas Lindhurst, who was, I think, playing the chauffeur to Corolla de Ville, it was all very weird, came across and pulled his trousers up. And our, our artist, who was a, a lady, um, was sort of her, her legs were exposed, whatever. And I thought that cannot happen. That yep. cannot happen yep. when we go live. And so the next day when we did that, we basically said to her, look, go to the loo now because we're going to sew you into this. Right. Is what we did. And of course, by the time we got her out of it, she was in quite a rush to to, to run off. Um, but that that uh, but that I mean the day itself was actually bonkers because um, I'd been told that we were a change of plan. We were going to come down the mall. They had the postman pat van, and they had the noddy car and they had various cars. So. I had to walk down with a with postman Pat, walk down the mall, being led by a police car with the blue light flashing at five <laughs> miles an hour. Various tourists coming up for a photograph. I'm sorry, can't stop, go against the Queen, excuse me. And we came down. And as we came down, we turned left into the front of the palace by the Victoria Monument, and the Metropolitan Police were pushing people aside. And they started to open the gates at the front. And this caused me a bit of concern because we'd been told not to go in the front. And oh, that there right. were sharpshooters on the roof, mm. uh, and they they would not, you know, they were they were serious. And they weren't a, carrying, a, they weren't costume characters. They were real sharpshooters. Yeah, they were real sharp. <laughs> and the fathers for justice had broken, I think, the year before. So they're very twitchy about this. Yep. And I'm thinking, I'm going in there, and they've told us not to. Um, and I thought, well, if, if I see a laser sight on my on my chest, I'll know <laughs> that it's it. But if it's on my forehead, I won't even know. But as we walked in the gates, you know, obviously because I was with postman Pat, I was yep. okay, and they let us in. Um, but it, it, it was completely bonkers. I do remember backstage there was um, the, the trooper ready to come out, the, the soldiers that looked amazing in their uniforms and the brass instruments were shining in the sunshine. The sergeant majors lined them up so they could go out the front and play, play the music. And just as we were lined up and ready to go, there was a beep beep from behind. And I looked, and there's Winnie, Winnie the Pooh in a golf cart <laughs> just beckoning to them to get off the path so he could come past. And, and I swear to God that, that that sergeant major nearly combusted on the spot when he saw. You know, this is a man who probably seen action and killed people, and Winnie the Pooh was telling his, his soldiers to get out of the way. Yeah, it was uh, completely mad. Probably broke every rule in the uh, separation of character universes book as well, having all of them interacting at the same time. 
yeah, it, it was wrong, but it was the palace, Buckingham Palace, and so you weren't going to say no to that. Yep, sure in fact, that. people were people were ringing me up saying, "David, how can we get in there?" And obviously, yep. it wasn't for me to say. We were simply fulfilling a need, really. David, you've told us about a lot of the international traveling you did on export, but and any particularly unusual country you managed to visit? Well, yeah, I um, on my fiftieth birthday. Um, I, I didn't, wasn't very happy about being 50, so I thought I'd do something slightly different, and uh, decided to go to North Korea. Wow. Uh, and so got a visa. That wasn't too difficult. But then we had to fly to Beijing uh, and then find the North Korean embassy in Beijing to get the ticket to fly to Pyongyang because it wasn't on the international computer where everything was linked in. You simply had to go and get a paper ticket. So managed to find the North Korean embassy, um, and was first of all told to go away in no uncertain terms, and then eventually they let us in. And a chap turned up with a, a, a little badge of Kim Jong-il, who was the, in charge at the time, and, and he gave us a ticket and said, be at check-in desk 30, Beijing airport, 9.30 tomorrow morning. So we were. And and when you say on, we, David, how many of there you was were? A, there, there was a small group of six. You can't really go in on your own, so this was a small right. group of six. Um, and... Uh, so we're, we're on the plane going to, to Pyongyang and the in-flight reading, uh, normally if you're if you read a flight on your way to your holidays, they're talking about azure beaches and yep. palm trees. The in-flight reading was telling us about how the, the Korean War started, uh, <laughs> oh. which was, was in fact started by the South Koreans uh, under, under orders from the imperialist devils of the USA. Uh, and it was, it, it, it's, it was thanks to the the North Korean patriots that it was uh, held back. Um, so that was the first thing. But then we had to fill out various forms and questions like how how many article, articles do you have? How many articles do you have? And does that mean clothing? If so is it socks two or one? Right. So we didn't quite know how to fill these forms out. So we landed and it was very foreboding, very black skies and it was quite dark building. And of course, everyone is in the military uniform there as you get off the plane. And we lined up, and you can't, couldn't take mobile phones in, so there mobile phones behind. And anyway, I was the first in the group to hand in my papers, and I stood back from the desk while this lady in the military uniform was checking it. And I noticed she put a finger on a, one of the parts of the paper and looked up at me and looked down again where her finger was. Right. And she looked up at me again and summoned me nearer. I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I stepped forward, and she looked down where her finger was and looked at me and said, Mr. Scott... I said, yeah. She said, happy birthday, <laughs> which I, I had achieved my game of forgetting all about my birthday. But in, in, in North Korea, you know, that's very important because they don't have a religion. They have their own juice system. Right. Effectively, everything revolves around dates. So okay. uh, motorway is the 5th of June highway. So David, just to wrap, what, what we're going to do is anybody who's kind enough to, to do a, a chat with us here on Living With Licensing, I'd just like to ask you, not necessarily the most successful, not necessarily the most popular, but just the favourite three licensed properties that you've worked on in your career. Well, I think Bob the Builder was the first one. That was one that really took off, and uh, and all credit to Hit Entertainment. They actually paid for many appearances in the first year, but then we got to what we call the tipping point, and, and people started booking from us, and they didn't need to invest in any more, and so for the next 10 years, we grew with Bob the Builder, so we've always got a great affinity for Bob the Builder mm. there. Um, ultimately, I'd say Wenlock, Wenlock and Mandeville for the Olympics. That was our home Olympics, and I think yeah. that was a, 
a great thing for us. We not only made all the costumes, we managed every single appearance. So it, it, it took a lot of time to do that, but it was, it was great for us to do. And then I'd say the third would be Peppa Pig. And okay, Peppa. People may not believe this now, but in the first year or two with Peppa Pig, we could not give appearances away. Hmm. The licensor even said, David, we will pay for them to go if someone will have Peppa Pig. Yeah. And they didn't want it. Uh, and of course, the rest is history. Yes, a remarkable turnaround when Pepper's moment finally arrived. And, and it's still going, it's still going. And it's still going. And so indeed is Rainbow Productions, though you, you're going to be spending your time in retirement. So I'd just like to uh, end today's podcast by thanking you one more time, uh, David, for joining us and wishing you a very happy retirement indeed. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kelvin. Thank you. A big thank you to our sponsor, Dependable Solutions the licensing management software specialists thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode of living with licensing please tell your friends and colleagues